0: Hi, everyone. I'm Emma Partridge, and I want to welcome you to a new season of All Right, Now What, a podcast by the Canadian Women's Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us for our first three seasons where we explore the pandemic's impact on women and girls. But even when this virus recedes, its impacts will continue to be felt. We still need systemic change to achieve gender equality. So moving forward, every week our experts will put an intersectional feminist lens on one topic we've all been hearing about, The issues and stories that just seem to keep resurfacing and make you wonder, why is this still happening? How is it possible we haven't fixed this yet? We're going to explore the systemic roots of these issues and real strategies for change. The work of the Canadian Women's Foundation and the organizations that we support takes place on traditional First Nations, Métis and Inuit territories. We are grateful for the opportunity to meet and work on this land. However, we recognize that land acknowledgments are not enough, we need to pursue truth, reconciliation, decolonization, and allyship in an ongoing effort to make right with all our relations. Hi, Andrea.
1: Hi, Emma. How are you? I'm good. How are you?
0: Yeah, I'm good. Um, I'm really excited to have the guests that we have here today. Dr. Sarah Kaplan has a number of titles to her name. And what are we talking with her about
1: today? Well, I think we're talking about the gender pay gap and new legislation that's coming up. Um, It's going to be in effect, uh, particularly for the federal level, but we're always thinking about what we can do to eliminate the gender pay gap in Canada, period.
0: That's right. And that legislation that you're alluding to there goes into effect on August 31st. So it seems like a really important time to discuss this topic. So I'm just going to welcome Dr. Sarah Kaplan and Andrea, I will see you again at the end of the episode.
2: Great. So I'm Sarah Kaplan. I'm a professor of strategic management and the director of the Institute for Gender and the Economy at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management. Uh, My main focus over the last several years has been um, in building up the research insights that can help us change the conversation on gender equality. That's why I founded the institute. And the and the and the goal is to. Get us away from the tired conversations and the tired tropes that are out there that are keeping us from making progress and show what rigorous scholarly research, the evidence that comes from that, can do to get us to move forward.
0: Dr. Kaplan, thank you so much for being here today. So just give us a bit of a background on the gender pay gap in Canada up to this point. What have employers been required to do previously? And how have governments attempted to tackle this issue? So- Canada is
2: very unique in the sense that it has had pay equity legislation in the province of Ontario for more than 30 years and in many of the other provinces. Uh, And the goal of pay equity legislation is to focus on differences in pay for jobs that are of equal value. That's different from uh, equal pay for equal work, which is covered under the Human Rights Code. So one of the complexities of the Canadian landscape is that two different sources of potential differences in pay are actually monitored and managed by two different parts of our legal code and our regulatory code. So equal pay for equal work is sort of, you and I do exactly the same job, only I get paid more than you do. Why is that? Um, and that can be a source of inequality in uh, and creation of the wage gap. In lots of industries, we've seen examples of that for example, just a few years ago, there was a, a ruling uh, based on human rights code against the LCBO because they were paying their part-time store clerks less than their full-time store clerks, uh, even though they were doing exactly the same job. Uh, and in fact, when they were hiring, they were disproportionately channeling women into the part-time roles and men into the full-time roles. And so you got a you know, unequal pay for what turns out to be equal work. So that's one way that we can you know, try to reduce the wage gap and companies or any employer is liable if they are violating human rights code on that front. Pay equity is looking at equal pay for jobs of equal value. And the question then becomes what counts as a job of equal value? And for the 30 or more years of the uh, Ontario pay equity legislation, companies uh, were required to analyze their jobs and could be audited uh, it, uh by by the pay equity commission if they did not do it correctly or if someone brought a complaint and so the question then becomes you know we're comparing a housekeeper to a janitor if the janitors are being paid more than the housekeepers and women are predominantly housekeepers and men are predominantly janitors then that would be an example of unequal pay for jobs of equal value and then you would have to uh you know, improve on things, and just as I think it's useful to understand those technical details about the different ways that we can fight against the gender wage gap, I'll close by saying that neither of those ways, and neither of the efforts over all of these years of, you know, given that we have those frameworks in place, have really closed the wage gap. We're still stuck on average, depending upon how you calculate it, uh, at about 88 cents, um, and that's because. Those two issues that we do have legal, you know, mandates for actually are not the major source of the gender wage gap, and so that's where we've been so far. As we haven't closed the wage gap, and our provincial legislation hasn't helped, hasn't changed it yet.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a great segue into the next thing I wanted to ask, which was how has efforts to eliminate the gender pay gap been going? And as you've been saying, it sounds like it's sort of plateaued almost. So give us just a sense of the root causes and the reasons why it's been so challenging to eliminate this gap.
2: Yeah, so, and this is what I have even told people in the federal government as they've been implementing their pay equity legislation Uh, at the federal level, which of course is only applicable to uh, federally regulated businesses. So we now have in Canada a huge patchwork of pay equity legislation, depending upon which province you reside, your company is based in or any of your operations are based in and whether or not you're federally regulated. So we don't have a coherent pay equity. Even on pay equity, we don't even have a coherent policy. But as I said, after 30 years or more in Ontario, we haven't closed the wage gap. And you are correct in saying that we have basically plateaued. Uh, There hasn't been a lot of change in the last 15 or so years at all. And uh, that is because most of the source of the wage gap does not have to do with two people doing the same job and being paid unequally. That for sure exists. And if you look down at Bay Street or in the law firms, there's plenty, you know, uh, physicians, there's plenty of examples where that is definitely the case. But where most of the wage gap is coming from is for something that we call job segregation, which is that men and women end up for a series of reasons Pursuing different jobs, and I should also say that most of the conversation around the wage gap has been focused on the gender binary of men and women. We have almost no data on the wage gap or none at all on the wage gap uh, of for people who are non-binary or transgender. And the little data we have suggests that the wage gap is even more extreme uh, for that. So for most of this conversation, I'll talk as if there's a binary, but I wanna fully acknowledge that there isn't and that we should be talking about gender uh, on a spectrum and we need to get better data on that. But the main reason is that there is a kind of job segregation. So what does that mean? One is that when, and this is mainly driven by the arrival of the first child in a home, whether that's through adoption or having a child, the arrival of the first child, why? Because we have a gendered notion of who should be doing the primary caregiving. If a kid gets sick at daycare, who is the person who has to leave their work and go pick the kid up? Uh, if the if the kid has a day off from school because it's a, a, a it's a PA day or something like that, who is the person who has to stay home, you know, with the kid on their day off from school? And Canadian society is actually highly gendered in those assumptions, actually more highly gendered in those assumptions than say even our neighbors to the south in the United States in the assumption of the woman being the primary caregiver at home. So what does that mean? So if the woman is assumed to be the primary caregiver at home, that means that when she's thinking about a job, she's going to have to pick a job that is more flexibility, that doesn't necessarily have the, you know, the intensity of hours, and things like that. And so you end up getting this segregation. Either women are much more likely to be in part-time work, they're more likely to move into areas of a business such as the HR function that are seen as more female-friendly, they're more likely to move into government or nonprofit jobs, and all of these jobs pay less. And you know, so there's this reciprocal dynamic that it's also true that when women take on more of that caregiving at home, they enable, let's assume a heterosexual couple where there's a man and a woman at the home, and I also recognize that there's not all families look like that, but in those situations, it also enables the man to work a much more intense job, work many more hours, and we know that there's a disproportionate you know, bump in pay for extreme uh, devotion to the job and extreme hours. So, not only is the woman having to take pay cuts or be in jobs that pay less, but the very fact that she's doing it enables men to make more, and therefore you get this this wage gap. So that's really what's driving the wage gap, and so that cannot be fixed by pay equity or by equal pay for equal work legislation. That has to be fixed by more equal sharing of work at home, uh, better uh, family leave policies at work, better and more affordable childcare, which of course we are now hopefully getting in Canada with the recent budget announcement by the federal government. So there's a whole bunch of factors that lead into that and we're never going to fix it with these pieces of legislation.
0: Oh, I absolutely love the way you put that because you know at the foundation, I'm sure in many uh, women's organizations, When we speak about the gender wage gap, we very often get comments saying the wage gap isn't real, it's illegal in Canada to pay people of different genders differently on that basis. And it's really hard to explain that it's not just about two people doing the same job, being handed you know, two checks that are different amounts, it's about an entire system that is perpetuating these inequities.
2: Right, um, and that isn't to say that those things, like it is illegal in Canada, and yet many companies still do sure, pay absolutely. people differently, yeah. but there's all sorts of tricky ways to do that. So like you're two law partners in a law firm, and if the there are some just gender bias that goes into that, if the man is being given more opportunities to work on high profile clients than the woman is, not only will he generate more business, but he will also be able to rise up more quickly in the ranks of the law firm. And so there are dynamics inside firms. This is not just about, quote, the family situation. It's also assumptions that managers make and the lack of opportunities that managers um, you know, may, don't offer, basically, to, to women because of all sorts of assumptions, which include assuming that women won't want those roles because they have to, you know responsibilities at home, as opposed to making work Designing work in a way that would be, you know, accommodate everyone's need to do things outside of work.
0: Yeah, that's really good for me to know. I'm actually I'm going into my second year of law school, so. Right. So there you go. So. <laughs> I mean, law is one of those places that's Absolutely. very
2: intensely. You know, you have more than half of the graduates from law school are women. And yet, if you look at the top of law firms, and that's been the case for two decades. Right. And yet, if you look at the top of law firms, is not that many women. And that's in part because of job design. And it's also in part because that women were not given the opportunities to build their client portfolios in ways mm-hmm. that would allow them to reach the top of the firm. So there's a lot of dynamics inside firms that are leading to those that that. Uh, wage gap. And in fact, there's another kind of legislation that we haven't talked about that isn't yet um, uh, in Canada, it may soon be pay transparency. But in the UK, they have pay transparency. And many Canadian companies have had to file reports, for example, all of the big banks that operate in the UK file reports on their wage gap, and it shows massive wage gaps 30 to 60% for most of the banks. And that's because They just have to say the average wages for women and the average wages for men. But by doing so, they highlight the fact that men are in all the top earning jobs and women are in the low earning jobs. And so this big segregation leads to these massive gaps. Uh, And so uh, what what pay transparency hasn't really highlighted anything about pay per se. It's much more highlighted the fact that women don't have the opportunities to reach into uh, the higher levels of organizations where the 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 pay where the pay is where you can make more money.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And can we discuss the ways that the gender pay gap is intersectional and intersects with other marginalized identities beyond just gender?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think anytime we talk about gender we have
0: to talk about intersectionally.
2: In fact, anytime we talk about anything we should be applying a, a gender-based intersectional lens to it because every policy, every practice, every product, every service, everything has differential impacts along those dimensions. Things that people uh, ignore or don't wanna believe are true. They think things are neutral when they're not. Uh, so when we talk about the gender wage gap, it's 88 cents. It's That's for women on average, but it is closer to, and I have better statistics in the United States than in Canada, but I think the numbers still apply. It's closer to 55 cents. For a Latina woman uh, or a black woman, the same is true for indigenous women in the Canadian context. So it's much more extreme. And again, that has to go with what job opportunities are people offered, what educational opportunities can people take advantage of? And uh, you know, so it becomes this kind of big spiral of 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 kind of reinforcing issues that lead to these the this job segregation. And yet, of course, during the pandemic, we've realized well who really are the most essential workers. If we really want to talk about equal pay for work of equal value, which is what pay equity is covering, I can tell you most of us during the pandemic, most of us who had the luxury of being able to stay home and and have groceries delivered, for example, um, would say that those delivery workers or the people who packed those groceries were the most valuable people in the entire economy, not the CEOs of those companies. And yet those people. Who are essential workers? Who are the most valuable? Are not being paid what the CEOs are being paid, and so we have a very notion, very narrow notion of what work equal work for equal equal pay for equal work of equal value is. Um, and if we really thought about it, we would think differently about who should be getting paid what.
0: I really appreciate you framing the um, the pay gap as existing not just between folks of different genders, but between folks at different levels in sort of the corporate hierarchy, because that's a really, really important point, I think, just to be clear that it's still a pay gap if women make up a fraction of those top executive roles. That still indicates some something unequal about the system.
2: Of the TSX listed companies, only 5% of CEOs are women, almost no people of color of any kind in those ranks. So yes, absolutely. And so then you say, oh, well, what's the source of the wage gap? Well, I'm like, look at the difference between what CEOs make and frontline workers make and look who's a CEO and who's a frontline worker. And that
0: will give you your answer. Totally, and actually my next question was, how is the COVID-19 pandemic worse than the wage gap? Um, So yeah, I'm wondering if there's anything else you'd like to say here around the inequities that the pandemic has sort of highlighted or exaggerated. Well, the the
2: pandemic has certainly highlighted exactly this gap we were talking about, about who's the essential worker. And these tend to be uh, racialized, marginalized immigrant or migrant workers who ended up being our most essential workers. The migrant workers who pick our food are some of the most essential workers. And yet they have no paid sick leave. They have no days off. They have no, you know. So yes, that's one thing the pandemic uncovered. And that relates to the wage gap. The other thing is, that during the pandemic, because daycares were closed, schools were closed, someone had to stay home with the kids. And in the first few months of the pandemic, uh, when we're talking about heterosexual households, where there's a man and a woman and a uh, two, you know, male and female part, uh, parent in the household, we were seeing that the men were actually doing a lot and sharing the burden. And everyone got really excited about that. and was like, oh, this is gonna be great. This is a whole new shift. And then about two months in, uh, when people kind of figured out how to work on Zoom and all this kind of stuff, it went right back to men doing the, about the same amount of work at home as they had done prior to the pandemic, but women still doing more because the kids were still at home or being sent home from school, even if schools were partly open or things like that. So, what does that mean? One, women are working, uh, either leaving the workforce entirely. Which will have long-term effects on their on their wages if they re-enter the workforce later. The, it, it has a lifetime impact on the level of wages that that women will be able to earn. Or they're going part-time, which again impacts the amount that they're able to earn. Or they are still working, but they're not taking on that big high-profile uh, profile assignment, or they're not just you know they're doing. 90% of what they were doing before because they just can't homeschool their kids and do that and then they you know then it comes time for promotion and you look at two people and if the woman has had more obligations at home as we've seen she may be not not be selected for the promotion or she may even say I I literally you can't promote me now because I can't hold my life together because I'm having to do the majority of the work at home. So I think what we are going to see is the COVID-19 pandemic very much exacerbating both the gender career gap and the gender wage gap. And I think that's going to have generational impacts on the number of women who are living in poverty when they retirement, as an example.
0: So we've started talking a little bit about the legislation and how it's not maybe a solution to some of these problems. So I I guess my question then is, what have advocates or people working in this area been calling for? Like what are tangible solutions that people have been asking? for.
2: Yeah. So it's interesting because most people you talk to are shocked to learn that pay equity legislation and, you know, human rights law for equal pay for equal work have not closed the gap. And they think that pay equity should do it. They think somehow that that tool, and I, I mean, I said this to the, the folks in the federal government when they were really pushing for pay equity legislation, the federal level, I, I kept saying, you know, that this is going to be it's, it's a great tool to have, but it is not going to fix this problem. And they were shocked. I don't think there was an awareness of how little this legislation uh, can move, can actually change things. It's, it's an important tool. It's worth it for organizations to do the analyses, but it's not going to ch- solve the fundamental problems that you and I have been talking about. So what is the answer? Child care, affordable child care. And that's why When uh, the Institute for Gender and the Economy joined with YWCA Canada to write the Feminist Economic Recovery Plan for Canada, one of our primary recommendations was childcare, and we were very gratified to see the federal government come through with recommendation and a plan and budget for $10 a day universal affordable childcare. And they're starting to write the agreements with all the provinces and territories on this, and I think that's terrific news, because we know that, for example, in Quebec, which has had universal affordable uh, childcare for a number of years, they have the smallest of the wage gaps in all of Canada. Why? Because women are able to work (laughs) and and don't have you know it's affordable to you know in Toronto it's been almost unaffordable for most people to put their kids in in childcare uh, prior to the school years. So, um that you th- you wouldn't think that childcare was the essential wedge for the gender wage gap, but it actually is. And then there's a whole bunch of things that you can't legislate uh, that you can't make policies about that really employers have to be doing the work. And the work of employers, as we talked about earlier, is really uh, making sure that they are creating opportunities for every employee, whether they're uh, a transgender person, uh, a racialized immigrant, whatever it is, that they're creating the same job opportunities, that they're putting their thumb on the scale to make sure those people are getting as many opportunities and getting promoted uh, at the same level. And it's extremely difficult in the, I think in the Canadian context, because there are many assumptions for example, many of my students who are getting their MBAs at the Rotman School of Management, which is leading business school in Canada, who are immigrants, half of our students come from outside of Canada, say that they have difficulty getting jobs because everyone wants them to have, quote, Canadian experience. And I'm like, why? That's, that idea of Canadian experience is just plain old racist. So we think of Canadian experience as this somehow neutral thing, but in fact, it ends up having these hugely racialized impacts that's an example that companies just have to eliminate that and to be thinking about how are we gonna be giving opportunities to everyone? And we at the Institute for Gender and the Economy have been doing some research ourselves on thinking about solutions, sort of behavioral solutions, changing what we call choice architecture. So for example, we found that there is a gender gap in people seeking out promotions and everyone thinks it's because women are more risk averse or whatever. But of course, actually, it's not that women are more risk averse. It's, it's because women know that they're much less likely to get promoted if they put their hat in the ring. And so the risk profile is actually riskier for them to put their hat in the ring than for a man to do the same thing. And yet people say, oh, women are more risk averse. And I'm saying, no, you're actually asking women to take a greater risk to do that. So if instead you make promotions what we call opt-out instead of opt-in, which is everyone at a certain level gets considered for the promotion, and they can get the opportunity to opt out and not be considered if they want, but they're automatically considered unless they choose not, instead of having to put their hat in the ring. And when you change that choice architecture, you actually completely erase the gender difference. And so these are things that companies are going to have to do. We can't legislate our way out of this problem. We have to change employer practices. And that's one example of something that we could do.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this really actually reminds me of the conversation or the line of thinking around negotiating pay, because I feel like I get messages all the time that the way to eliminate the gender wage gap in your own life is by negotiating your pay when you start a new position but a whole dimension that's left out of that conversation is well how do employers react to women who advocate for themselves or for their own pay equity because i'm guessing the answer is not not well
2: yeah well it's yeah. interesting because there's plenty of research that shows that when women negotiate they're seen as unpleasant and when men negotiate yeah. <laughs> they're seen as ambitious or you know and and a lot of organizations You know, will say, Well, there's you know, there's a difference in pay between these two people. Well, he negotiated better. But of course, the woman is in a double bind when it comes to negotiations. But this is where again employers come in because employers have to look at the salaries and say, if this person negotiated well, then we have to give this other person the same salary. We can't base it on negotiations because those neg- negotiations are fraught with gendered and racialized assumptions that make it much more difficult for, so it's not enough to quote, fix the women. That was like the whole, when that book Lean In came out, Sheryl Sandberg's book a number of years ago, I said, that's silly advice because uh, women do lean in and then they get slapped back. So the the thing is not just like you can lean in and magically everything will happen. You lean in and you pay the price. And that's why it is so much riskier for women to do those kinds of behaviors and no one considers that. And that's So we can't fix the women. What we have to do is fix the systems. We have to have the HR function in an organization saying, hey, these two people are not being paid the same. It looks like that one did a better job in negotiating. We got to bump this person's salary up and we just have to do that. And so those are the kinds of things that can, can fix it. And these are really employer practices. You can't
0: legislate that yeah, so speaking of that, it it seems like there are some gaps in the, in the new federal legislation. but I'm wondering if there was anything that excited you about the legislation or anything that you found especially noteworthy. Um, well,
2: you know, as I said, there's a lot of things that can't be legislated that really right. are practices. And mm-hmm. so given the scope of what the government can do, this is not an unreasonable thing to promote, but I think the government has to be realistic about what can be achieved with pay equity legislation. And I think what's notable about the pay equity legislation at the federal level is they're much more focused on the intersectional perspective. So this is not just a gender binary, but all genders and also thinking about the intersections with race or disability or other things, indigeneity. And so that's exciting that that's part of the conversation. And the other part that I have kept saying to the folks in the federal government, and I don't know if they will take me up on this invitation, is that in order to do a pay equity analysis, it's actually quite complicated. You have to have skills in um, and many you know, medium-sized organizations and smaller organizations actually don't even really have HR departments who could really do this work. So what I have been saying both to the Ontario pay equity uh, commissioners over the years Uh, and at the federal level, is that you need to think of this as capacity building for organizations to understand the uh, picture of their employees better. And if you think of these analyses as not just something you have to do to comply with this new legislation, but as something that helps you understand the inequities in your uh, employees and understand the the jobs, if it becomes an analytical tool that can better uh, advance effectiveness in an organization, Uh, then I think it can be incredibly useful. And so if it's taken that way, I think it's great. So that means that the government has to invest more resources into actually capacity building in organizations, not seeing themselves as enforcers, but instead as uh, compatriots, Uh, skill builders, educators, people who can, can, you know, focus on the capacity building inside organizations. And if that happens, then I think that there's some exciting paths that the implementation of the legislation could take.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I wanted to ask just as a final question, whether or not you have hope for those paths, whether or not you have hope for the future of pay equity in Canada. And I I wrote this question list before an election had been called, so perhaps that question is more complicated now. But I, yeah, I'm yeah. just wondering about your level of optimism. Well,
2: the current government definitely has had an explicitly feminist agenda. There have been a number of things on the agenda that have advanced uh, gender equality in Canada. And I hope that that continues no matter what the outcome of the election is. Uh, this agenda is incredibly important. And you know what we've been trying to do at the Institute for Gender and the Economy is inform those policy discuss- dis- discussions with what the research actually tells us works, and the research tells us that pay equity legislation is not going to be the most powerful, you know, arrow in your quiver. Uh, it, you need other things, and so we need to also start having a different conversation with employers about what their responsibility is in terms of creating true equity. And in fact, what the benefits are in terms of being able to serve their markets better and to have more motivated employees. One of the things we've been promoting is what we're calling gender analytics, which is intersectional gender-based analysis, and not just on your employees or your talent, but also on your products and services and your offerings. Banks are struggling to attract women as investors. Well, why? Because they've never thought about that marketplace and really invested in understanding the needs of that marketplace. Car, women are much more likely to get injured in a car accident because car safety measures are not designed for women's anatomy, for women's size bodies. Uh, these are all things that if you actually had more representation in your organization as you're designing your you know, artificial intelligence tool or whatever, you would end up with better products and services that would better meets the meet the needs of the markets. And so to me, this is not just about Oh, fixing talent to fix talent's sake. This is about fixing your organizations to do a better job at, you know, at, at at meeting your mission or vision or strategy of the organization. And so I really think employers need to get on the bandwagon in a much more forceful and direct and central way to their business as opposed to just an add-on on the side of what they do.
1: Here are some other things happening this week. The Women's Funding Network has issued a statement of solidarity with vulnerable genders in Afghanistan, and we're signatories. Learn more about it at womensfundingnetwork.org. Earlier this month, Statistics Canada released a report showing that one in four women were the target of inappropriate communication, sexually explicit materials, sexual suggestions, or unwanted touching in the workplace in the year leading up to the pandemic. Workplace sexual harassment is still a huge problem. The city of vancouver has launched a survey to better understand gender-based harassment and sexual assault in public spaces in an attempt to reduce violence against women and trans two-spirit and gender diverse people fill out the survey on the city of vancouver's website
0: thanks for listening just by downloading and sharing the show you're supporting gender equality If you'd like to help Canada get even closer to gender justice, consider donating to support our work at canadianwomen.org. Until next time.